The protests for racial justice and equality in 2020 across the United States led to a sweeping public reassessment of the American past, in particular, the meaning of slavery and the Civil War, and how these have been remembered in public spaces. That's the topic of this episode of Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History. Outspoken highlights people and ideas in the fields of oral and public history, along with current events of community interest. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra, professor of history and an associate director of the center. Natalie Garcia will be along later from the archive. Maybe you were there marching for justice, for black lives to matter just as much. Maybe you watched anxiously on television, hoping for safety for the marchers as well as for change. Perhaps you were concerned about vandalism and of bad actors taking advantage of the marches. Maybe all of the above. The conflict Black Lives Matter strives to resolve is rooted deep in the nation's history. The monuments that became a target have shallower roots in the aftermath of the South's crushing defeat in 1865. Reckoning with a maimed economy, the end of race-based slavery, and massive loss of life, white Southern leaders could no longer boldly argue for the virtues of slavery and secession as they had before the war. In a rhetorical pivot, the lost cause narrative of Confederate history advanced by former CSA General Jubal Early and other ex-Confederates attempted to absolve the South for blame in starting the Civil War. They now denied that slavery had any role in causing the conflict. They valorized Confederate leaders such as Robert E. Lee and Thomas Stonewall Jackson as virtuous heroes who only lost to superior numbers. Over time, the erection of monuments to the Confederacy not only perpetuated the lost cause, but reinforced white supremacy and racial segregation. Monuments made visual the white South's reaction to the African-American drive for equality. After official segregation ended in the 1960s, white Southern rhetoric shifted again. The monuments now commemorated heritage. Confederate symbols remain potent. We saw them during the Capitol riot on January 6th. Today's guests have spent a semester taking a deep dive into the memory of the Civil War, viewing a documentary on the monuments, reading scholarly texts on historical memory and the Civil War, and building something to examine what is being torn down. The project for my Introduction to Public History class asked students to create a digital web-based archive dedicated to the history of Confederate memory. We called it Mapping Confederate Monuments. The site is hosted on a platform called Omeka and can be easily found with a search. There's also a link to the site on the homepage of the DeGroff Center. So let me introduce these three graduate students who helped create this archive of some 40 Confederate monuments. We have Luca Asma, Fernando Lopez, and Mel Vigil joining us on Outspoken. Welcome one and all. Uh, we've never met in person, I don't believe, but here we are in another Zoom meeting. <laughs> this is how we know each other. So I do look forward to seeing you all in person once COVID allows that. Since we're on that, uh, what's it been like as students doing everything virtually this year? It's interesting to have my first year as a grad student to start uh, this journey through uh, Zoom meetings and just everything being online. 
And yes, yeah, it's, it's been it's been such a weird experience, but in the end I just feel at the same time lucky that I can do this at home uh, in the comfort of my own home and just you know just being able to study and just like once like just one step away from my desk is my bed so I can just relax right after class. What about you Luca? How are you doing this this year all virtual? Yeah, so I was lucky enough to meet some of my classmates here in the first year, which has kind of made, you know, building a community and building rapport a little bit easier with classmates. But um, um, other than that, I mean, it saves 200 a month in gas. So I'm definitely glad for that. But um, spoken like a Southern Californian. <laughs> yeah, the commutes are not fun, but um, absolutely. What about you, Fernando? It's been different. Um, I've been to um, Cal State Fullerton and uh, for my BA and it's just coming into you know the graduate program zoom meetings and everything it's quite different but I'm getting used to it it's been a strange year uh, for sure uh, you could say that about 2020 in general right an, an eventful year a historic year we could say um, what do you all remember about the protests over the summer after these Really, it's, it's been an ongoing series of deaths, but these were highly visible ones, all concentrated of several African-Americans, especially, of course, the gruesome killing of George Floyd. What, what do you remember about those protests and, and what were you thinking? It was unsurprising the the amount of the just the mass protesting as as many of us have been uh, growing with a lot more everything becoming so digital being becoming everything recorded it's um it, for me it was unsurprising uh, just to see the overwhelming uh, reaction and however it what kind of made me uh, upset with everything was the way how the news was kind of moving the narrative on blaming protesters on certain damages done on buildings and just the way how certain media outlets have been kind of have been blaming protesters for uh, all the chaos when really um, we should be when the media should be focusing on you know why are the police uh, just murdering people People like a lot of the, as I said, a lot of like uh, a lot of the news just has been blaming on us protesters where we should be focusing on why and how all these things are happening and also trying to have a debate or a discussion as to in what ways as us as a community can help the black community, especially for those of us who are not who are not black and to kind of what can we do to help them so they so they don't feel so um alone in all of this chaos so that's that's to me what i i've been thinking especially last summer where i live so close to downtown la i was very close to many of the protests i was very close to um i've been to some protests myself i've seen how aggressive the the police can be and and how like a lot of people like they you Another thing I've noticed is that you can really, you, I've, I've seen people's true colors and the way how they reacted towards uh, the protests, the looting, and um, just how, the, how people have felt uh, throughout this heightened political climate uh, throughout a summer of 2020. What about you, Luca? 
Yeah, I mean, I think Mel covered a lot of it really, really well. Um, but I was kind of surprised because I had the same, I guess, first reaction, which I think as a student of history, it kind of helps to have that vantage point that it just seemed like this was going to be due at some point. Um, it was just a matter of, of when. So, um, I mean, it's always a bit of a shock when it actually does happen, but um, I guess that historical context that's been given by studying history and being in this program, you can definitely see where all of that comes from. And this, this um, class of monuments especially kind of puts that all into context, so. Yeah, we really, as historians, what we're really trying to gain is perspective, right? The long view. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's um, not always easy to convey that perspective in a, as you said, Mel, a very charged political climate, but that is what we try to do. Fernando, what about you? What was the summer like for you? I, I think what really hit me, and this was way before the summer, was the Charlottesville protest. And just, I was just, I can't really, it's kind of hard to kind of put it in words, but shocked that these elements, you know, this white supremacy, you would think, oh, you know, they're in the country or, but it's just incredible how this just keeps on coming. Like it, it's like a cycle in a way. So I think it from there and then, then the summer protests and then just comparing people on both sides, comparing each other saying, oh, you know, you're gonna, you let this group of people do this. You let this group of people do this. And it was just very, um, just kind of shocking. But yeah, and it, it, from a historical point of view, I mean, we've gone, you know, the 60s, the 50s, all that time. And, you know, you look back and you're like, oh, you know, we've gone better, we've become better. And then this all this, you know, this kind of happened and it shocks people. And yeah, I think, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Well, okay, then, then you start fall semester. And you're taking intro to public history. And what do you know? <laughs> Here we go. We're gonna we're gonna deal with this issue because the other thing that was happening all summer was you know statues, monuments were being addressed and attacked, sometimes taken down, right? Uh, as part of the general protest uh, that was going on, uh, and then that that generated its own controversy, right? The kind of al allied controversy. So. I'm assuming that as historians, you all had some kind of exposure to the, the Civil War before you took intro to public history, but what did you know about how the war was remembered before taking the class? Because we really dealt not so much with the war itself, but we dealt with how it's been remembered over time. Oddly enough, uh, a lot of what I studied with civil, with the history of the civil war has been from high school i uh, a lot throughout my undergrad i tried to avoid any uh, american history classes that's just because um my interest is more on uh, medieval european history and uh, also modern european history and so coming into class and the fact that one of my first classes is um is public history and the focus is on is on um just the public memory of the civil war i was um quite frankly scared 
because um, I just, because I, I, I know navigating through that history can be difficult. And um, so for me coming in, all I knew was the, the South lost and they're, and they're just really bitter about it. And they created this whole lost cause narrative. And that's, that's all I knew before coming into class. Yeah, well, you know, it's unresolved. It's clearly unresolved, right? It's not just historical. It's, it's still, it's current events. Yeah. It's very current events. And that gives a little different uh, feeling to it for sure. What about you, Fernando? I'm on the same page with Mel. It's the same thing. You know, you hear it throughout high school and, and I was, oh, I don't want to take a U.S. history class, you know, because you go through it. And um, yeah, so, and then when I took this class, I was almost had the same feelings. I was like, all right, I guess we're going to civil war. Here we go. And um, the interesting, the lost cause narrative, that's one thing I've learned from, from your class. I did not, I knew that the South and predominantly white Southerners still held on to that because you see it in the news, you know, with with some of their flags, you know, the Confederate battle flag, you know, they're like, oh, this is my heritage. So yeah, the lost cause narrative was kind of new to me, but it was really, I think this was great to kind of go more into it and especially the text you assigned, it kind of opened my mind up more to just, this is current, like you were saying, that this is very current to now. It's not some war that happened a while ago. It was a pretty traumatic event for, for the country to go through a civil war and we're feeling the repercussions of it to this day. Yeah, 150 years later. Luca, what about you? Like everyone else, I also wasn't really, I guess, historically aware of a lot of things um, in part. Um, I think some of that maybe is due to where the history textbooks in high school still end. Um, they don't really get that deep into things, you know, surrounding the civil rights movement um, because they could usually save that to the end. And unfortunately, there's a lot of times where it's the end of the semester, they need to get to, you know, the, the end of the curriculum and that kind of, that stuff kind of gets swept under the rug, um, unfortunately, just like, you know, it is in broader society. Um, so that's definitely pointed me to a, maybe a fall on my own um, education, but maybe to fill that gap, I had read a lot of um, like Michael Shera and his son, Jeff Shera. So that um, I definitely came from a different perspective in this class. So it's definitely very eye-opening for me to be able to see it from the maybe non quote unquote, I guess, non-traditional perspective that's still shared um, in a lot of places. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that it was not at the top of your research agendas, uh, diving into the Confederacy. <laughs> and not just because some of you are interested in uh, European history or what have you. It does feel like, and I teach this, I teach the Civil War. It's not my area of research, but I do teach it. I've always been into it since I was a kid. But you, I, do, I do feel like often I'm wading into something that I want to make sure I can get out of quickly because, because it's so fraught. It's still very much present. It's very much a part of current 
uh, American culture. And that makes it, it makes it exciting, but sometimes not in, in good ways. And, uh, you know, I think January 6th was one of those ways. Um, and we've seen many of them. All of you had a monument that you were to research. And then you also were part of groups that did a group of monuments or a theme, right? So maybe you could tell us what your individual piece was and then what your group uh, project was. And these are things that, that listeners can go to the site and, and find out more. But what did you do, Mel? Um, so mine was on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Um, the main reason I uh, chose that specific monument was because um, when it comes down to uh, American history, I've always loved learning about the civil rights movement. And when, when, when one is discussing about Edmund Pettus Bridge, we're talking about Selma, Alabama. And especially, and even more into that is Bloody Sunday. And so I really uh, wanted to know more because I didn't even know he was a Confederate general until I read about it. Um, he was the Grand Dragon of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. Um, it, it was interesting just reading about how a Ku Klux Klan, a Grand Dragon was uh, named um, on the bridge. But however, for uh, my piece, I really wanted to focus more on the civil rights movement aspect on the bridge. And so I put a lot of emphasis on John Lewis, um, whom, um, you know, he, he fortunately died last year as well. And the cool thing that I found is that um, a lot of students uh, within Selma are fighting to uh, rename it to the John Lewis Bridge as he almost lost his life fighting for the civil rights movement during Bloody Sunday. Um, and for the group project, um, what my group and I did was Monument Avenue. Richmond, Virginia, right? Yes. And so we, instead of focusing on, on statues individually, we focused on just the, the rise and fall of Monument Avenue. And uh, my part was about the impact of Charlottesville, because um, since Charlottesville and Richmond are so close, um, I figured that there has to be a connection and there was. Um, so, for example, like Mayor Stoney spoke out against the, 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 the violent acts that the white supremacist groups were doing towards, uh, um, towards the protesters. And he, what, he, even called, he even called a lot of the people out for, as being white supremacist and neo-Nazi thugs. And, um, and I believe through, a, I think it was ABC News that they um, even did a one-year anniversary interview with people within Richmond. And after Charlottesville, there was much more of an urgent push to remove those monuments and to have a lot more of the public to be involved. And there was a lot more public involvement after Charlottesville. And so that's basically what I wrote for my part of the Monument Avenue. Monument uh, Avenue is this long avenue populated with really gigantic uh, yeah. statues, very large monuments to Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart and Jefferson Davis, right? Yes. And uh, those are coming down or scheduled to come down. Some are scheduled mm -hmm. to come down, I believe, right? Yeah, uh, some are down already. There was already one that has been taken down last year, and there are a few in the process. Right. Fernando, I know you did an individual piece too. But tell us what you did. Well, my individual one was the Jefferson Davis Monument in uh, Fairview, Kentucky. 
uh, pretty much it's a it's a it's a state park and it has uh, one of I think it's the second largest obelisk in North America and the interesting part I found the most was how the individuals who decided to build this monument were in a way competing with all the construction going on for the Lincoln Memorial and plus how uh, Lincoln's birthplace was also being um, kind of made into like a, a national monument also. So it, I found that interesting that they're like competing saying, hey, you know, our guy should be also represented in. And so then I, assume my, the, I assume the Washington Monument is the is the only one taller than the Jefferson Davis. Yes. <laughs> uh, then my group we did the Stone Mountain uh, Monument, which I think my part was mainly uh, kind of a brief history on what it was before, and also some of the well the, the significant ties it had with uh, the founding of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan and um, how that was significant. And, and pretty much we kind of, my group split it up in more of a timeline form where, you know, the process of the carving who was um, in charge, the, the original sculptors, the original plan making, the funding, and it just continued in how at this point, what the monument is being used now. And it's kind of interesting. It has, it's one of the, I believe the largest sculpted reliefs and originally it was supposed to cover the whole mountain but now it only has i believe jefferson davis robert e lee and stonewall jackson i believe they're all riding horses it's gigantic but yes it's really big you can see the process over the years how they kind of whoever's managing the park kind of went more of a family direction and kind of you know, in a way, not cover it, but integrate Stone Mountain more of a an American symbol instead of just a Confederate, you know, lost cause symbol. Yeah, and of course, the very close ties to the Klan, which had been noted before. But one thing I learned that you all uncovered was that the sculptor himself joined the Klan. <laughs> That's part of what you all are answering. You know, why why were these created? who was associated with their creation and what messages were being sent. Well, that's sending a message. Uh, it certainly does do that. Luca, what was your work all about this, this fall? And if I could just like segue using that, I mean, I think that's definitely the significance of this project in many ways is to kind of show these direct connections. And that definitely ties into my individual monument, which was on, um, the uh, Confederate Soldiers Monument in Caldwell County, Kentucky. Um, and it's fairly innocuous looking, but um, once you do a little bit more, you read the inscription that says something like, um, our hero's deeds will live. Um, then you start to see the connections. It was funded by the United uh, Daughters of the Confederacy and the speaker at its dedication, who um, eventually became the head of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, um, was definitely doing um, iteration of disassociation, trying to, you know, shift the narrative to one that's just about remembering the fallen instead of what they stood for. Um, so that was my individual one. And then for the group one, um, I was part of the New Orleans group. So we were focusing on monuments um, 
in the Jewel of the Confederacy, which um, was kind of the port city through which um, you know, a lot of um, African enslaved peoples were brought through. So there's big significance there. There's a lot of, um, a lot of controversy over those monuments um, as well. One of them that um, John Hall did was especially interesting, I thought, on the Confederate Memorial Hall Museum, which kind of shows another direct attempt to take control of that narrative of history and um, you know, shift it a little bit. Mine was on the um, Battle of Liberty Place uh, Memorial, which commemorates um, an uprising against um, the Reconstruction government. Um, so it's one dedicated to what they would call the War of Northern Aggression, I guess. That's definitely one that celebrates, um, I guess that narrative of the war is one where North is trying to impose things on the South. Again, again, that's a really good example of a direct connection between, you know, uh, white supremacy and the rollback of Reconstruction and memorializing the Civil War. I mean, they, they go hand in hand. They are, they are part and parcel of a certain attitude, historical attitude toward the past, but also to the political present in which they were built, right? Um, what's so fascinating, Mel, about Edmund Pettus Bridge is it's now, it starts out as a symbol of the Confederacy memorializing this uh, Confederate uh, general and clan wizard. But now when people hear Edmund Pettus Bridge, they think of John Lewis, they think of Bloody Sunday, they think of the Voting Rights Act and all the things that happened there in 1965. That's a rewriting again of, of a narrative in, in a more, I suppose, noble way. Yeah, um, a lot of what I learned about Edmund Pettus um, was very brief. I had to, it took me, it was much easier to find more historical um, just content about about the bridge, about connecting with its connection with the civil rights movement, John Lewis, versus the guy who's the Ku Klux Klan member. And, you know, at first, when I was kind of uh, making that small little blurb about that monument, I, I was a bit frustrated because, you know, how would they name a bridge about a man who, why would they name that bridge? There's not much, um, there's not anything about him. And it took a lot of clicks on Google to kind of finally get something. And it was through, I believe the national, I think the national um, registry when I was finally able to get something brief about him and then which connected me to something else. And uh, a lot of what was said about him was the emphasis that he was a, a, a Ku Klux Klan member. And I think that's something that's really important uh, when we're talking about um, just these Confederate monuments, the, this very deep and quite frankly, obvious connection with white supremacy, the racism, and just uh, this regard towards a, a whole group of people, like the Black community. And, and I think that's just very telling on when, when people are discussing about Confederate monuments to take into, to, to be aware that if they want to keep those, if they want to keep them up, you know, to be aware that like you guys are defending the, just the white supremacy that, that, they, that those monuments can mean to a lot of people. It's, it's pretty clear from the research that the class did that um, there was some, some very clear intention in that 
that way. Um, I wonder if your attitudes toward these monuments changed at all. They did not change. Do you think they should come down or do you consider valid the argument that, hey, this is part of history too and they shouldn't be taken down? What do you think, Luca? Well, the book that you had the graduate students read, which is James Rayette Young's um, The Stages of Memory, definitely had a lot of good things in them. Um, the historian in me is always wary of, you know, completely destroying artifacts. But I think that um, Young's idea of decontextualization is very helpful here. Um, you know, it's very possible that these monuments would be better served in a museum where there's, you know, context around it, um, especially since these monuments are what Young would call like a traditional style of monument, one that doesn't, um, you know, open room for reflection or for conversation, but one that imposes its um, narrative on its surroundings. So um, decontextualizing them, using them as an, I don't know, maybe some sort of, some sort of uh, edu educative function would be better served, I think, than um, letting them quote unquote speak for themselves, which we now know um, the history behind. So that would be my position on it. Yeah, I like that you raised that book. Uh, James Young, the historian who uh, consulted on the 9-11 memorial and on other significant memorials to tragedy around the world in his book, Stages of Memory, recounts that and also discusses you know, how we do this. How, how, how do we deal with very difficult and traumatic events in public ways? And that's, um, I like the application that you made. What do you think, Fernando? I'm completely on board with Luca. Um, the one area that I thought like uh, military memorials or at least um, uh, memorials that mark battlefields, I think those are important to keep up just because um, I'm interested in English history and specifically like War of the Roses. And at the time, obviously, you know, we're still trying to figure out what were the battles. And I guess that's my the military historian in me. I kind of want to know where exactly it happened so you could take a look at the geography, but also goes back to memorializing uh, soldiers. And I understand the monuments that went up right after the war, I mean, Many, there's many, you know, orphans, widows, people who lost grandparents, they wanted, you know, something. They wanted their deaths to mean something. And even though when initially the, I guess the, the pro-slavery part was not the best, but at least, I mean, we have to realize that these were people. Yes, they might've been, you know, I guess, I don't know how to say it, like misinformed or just wrong thinking. Um, it's hard to judge people and how, you know, back then, but yeah, I, I just feel important um, that at least military memorials, to an extent, the ones that were built right after the war are important to maintain. For me, I whenever it comes up into discussion, uh, especially I feel like many of us uh, historians probably get asked from other people, like, what do you guys think about uh, keeping uh, keeping the Confederate monuments up. I always uh, tell people that like, is it is it relevant enough for us to keep them up? And then two, what from keeping those up? What's in the end? What's the message that they give? 
And, you know, for a lot of people, they always say, oh, well, white supremacy um, just or the or the fact that the that the South has never, ever really come into terms that, you know, that, that they lost the war, that they lost the war. And I forgot um, who said this, but um, I remember in class, someone said they may have won that they won the the political war, but they but they won the uh, the cultural one because culturally it's really integrated uh, just the Confederacy and white supremacy throughout the South. And so for me, I just think I agree with Luca, you know, to put them in museums to kind of kind of showcase that, you know, this is part of our history, this is part of American history. And that's not something that we should be shying away from. We should just acknowledge it and say, this is what happened. This is what these monuments have caused and kind of allowing future Americans that, that you know, this is a path, this is something that we're still dealing with. And this is something that um, that the South or more so just the entire country itself needs to kind of come to terms with. You remind me that, you know, we keep talking about the South and obviously that's, that's, that's for good reason, but our mapping project actually showed a pretty wide range geographically of where these monuments exist. And we only scratched the surface. We only were able to do about 40 of them all told. Uh, Seattle, Mon Helena, Montana, California. I mean, the map is not just of the South. Uh, and until very recently, there were Confederate statues of Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens in the U.S. Capitol itself. Uh, so uh, this is not just a Southern issue. This is really a national conversation that, that we need to have. And the mapping project really shows that. You can see them uh, on an interactive map. I wonder, all of you, you're interested in various areas of history. I hear medieval history, European history, other, other areas. But here you are studying public history in this class. And as public historians, we do history in public. That's what it means, right? We do it for the public. Sometimes we do it in collaboration with the public. This mapping Confederate monument site that you've all put together is available to everyone. Does that make you nervous? Uh, for me, it kind of does, because um, <laughs> this is this is probably my first ever like public si publicized work I've ever done. Um, for at first, I was nervous, especially with I, I was more so worried about if people are going to be upset or people are going to misunderstand uh, the purpose of this project. Um, however, um, it just reminds me of this uh, conversation I had with uh, a professor um, from my previous school at Cal State Long Beach, how, you know, it, it, it's nerve wracking to have my work out there. But at the same time, um, I just hope that other, hopefully other students, other professors or other people who are interested or who want to participate in this conversation about keeping or removing these Confederate monuments can like look into our work and say, oh, maybe we should, maybe we should put them in the museum. Maybe, maybe we should have better, maybe we should have like a very good discussion about this, you know, and hopefully it opens dialogue and then hopefully it creates more historical skills or, or let people use those skills um, about uh, current events such as um, removing Confederate monuments. 
Yep. I think it definitely raises the, the ante um, to know that I'm putting my name on something and um, it'll be open for debate definitely made me do more research, but it also, I think, underscores the, the importance of it and the, the relevance of what we do. Fernando, your work is out there for people to see. How does it make you feel? Actually, I kind of like it in a way. And I, I kind of wish, I know I added, there was a, I forgot, I think it was in a post or something I added. It would be great to have like some sort of, whoever actually visits the site to have some sort of survey so we can kind of get a, all right, you know, what are people talking about? How can we, I guess not, well, yeah, to fix it, to make it, is there something that we can change about it that makes it more relative to individuals visiting the site? So I, I think it's, and it, and it's good experience, I think, to have something out there that we worked on, just to kind of, you know, I always thought Omeka was a great avenue because I didn't, never thought of Omeka, never heard of Omeka, and it's another avenue for at least graduate students another area that we can get into for a graduate project but I think it's pretty it's pretty cool yeah and we should definitely mention Colleen Green of the Pollock Library digital librarian who gave us a tutorial on Omeka and she taught a lot of things including about uh, copyright and how to gather these materials and how to credit them appropriately how has your participation in the project in the class deepened your understanding of of the public history field, because that really added, I think, a, a pretty substantial component that uh, didn't necessarily have to be there. Um, but I think you probably uh, developed some skills that you might not have otherwise. For me, like this class project, even though it's completely different of historical content of what I'm used to, I, I, I hope to become into a better public historian letting me use a much more digital media media onto my hope my future projects uh, and hopefully apply a lot of these skills onto uh, my research on medieval history and hopefully kind of allowing myself that you know I don't have to write a 20 page paper on medieval history I can make a digital I can make a digital survey um, about medieval history just the, like I feel like with public history the possibilities are endless in creating um, historical research and also it, it allows much more accessibility towards people as well and so and I, and I think those are the two main things that I, my biggest takeaway with this class was that I, I'm looking forward to create more accessible and easy um, content for people to use for future um, history projects. I mean, who knows how long COVID and this whole thing is going to last that these, these might be the future tools we're going to be using more often. But the accessibility is, is a major thing, I believe. You know, not everybody has the time to go to a museum or anything, but they can interact. I mean, most, a lot of people are on their phones most of the time. So I think there's a, it's a good avenue and a good skill set, as Mel mentioned. Yeah, to, um, I guess, pick up where everyone else left off, the accessibility component, um, especially on the technological side, I thought was very um, eye-opening, especially with, um, you know, becoming familiar with, basically with Dublin Core metadata, how do you, you know, accurately describe what's going on? Um, and also with the Library of Congress headings, you know, how do you make your work 
searchable and seeing those kinds of things from the library side is not something that I would have thought about um, as to how these works get found out of the all of the stuff that's out there. So I personally found that to be one of the most helpful parts of the project. And it, it adds tools to your toolkit for, if you wanna be a teacher, it, it definitely opens up possibilities. If you wanna go on and, and be a, a historian, an academic, it definitely opens up research possibilities. I and mean, it's a skill set that I think will help you. And of course, if you go into public history and work in museums, it's a very significant uh, skill to have. So I'm glad you all got the chance to, to learn it this year. I want to thank each of you for your work this semester on mapping Confederate monuments. It was really fun to see it all come together. And I thank all of you for coming and joining Outspoken. Mel Vigil, Fernando Lopez, Luca Azuma, thanks very much and stay safe. Have a good rest of your semester. The DeGroff Center is named for Lawrence DeGroff, founding history professor at CSU Fullerton. His research into the history of African-American Los Angeles broke new ground, provided the center with its earliest oral histories. Over the decades, Black voices have continued to contribute to the center's archive and mission. With more, here is Center Archivist, Natalie Garcia. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre Garcia, and I'm the archivist for the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. This section is where I highlight oral histories and other findings from our other projects. One of the oldest oral history projects housed in the center's archive is our African-American history collection. The project dates back to the late 1960s and includes interviews with prominent civil rights activists, journalists, and politicians, among others. In 1967, just two years after the deadly Watts riots, former COF director Dr. Lawrence DeGraff interviewed Judge Lauren Miller for our African-American oral history project. In this clip, Miller shares his thoughts on the hostility between the Watts community and the police. I must say, however, that wherever there were charges of police brutality, even in the old days, many of them came from the Watts community. I remember, now that you've mentioned it, there was a very famous case along about 1931 or 32. The name I can't remember, a policeman shot and killed a Negro boy. The policeman's first name was Lauren. But outside that, I don't, I don't know his name. But you see, Watts was always uh, the place in which uh, charges of police brutality, from which charges of police brutality emanated. And that's because of its particular character. Was it always sort of the, uh, the dumping ground for poor southern immigrants? It was. It was the place to which you came first in the old days. You came here from the south and you went to Watts and you lived, you got a job, and you got a little better off, and you moved away from Watts then, moved someplace else. And uh, for that reason, uh, there were always charges that the police were careless about rights. And I think, uh, I think uh, probably that that's true. The poor and the dispossessed the powerless are always targets of the powerful, are always targets of the police. So I think there's justification for it. 
In 2016, Dr. Melina Abdullah, professor and chair of Pan-African Studies at Cal State LA, was interviewed for a Women, Politics, and Activism and Suffrage Oral History Project. Abdullah was among the original group of organizers that convened to form Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Here she discusses what motivated her and others to organize a movement. What I dedicate most of my time to is Black Lives Matter. So Mm -hmm. I'm one of the original members of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm one of the leads in Los Angeles for BLM. And I do some work nationally as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really around... um, our work is real. I entered the work thinking that policing needed to be radically reformed. Mm-hmm. And I'm now at a space where I understand that I define myself as a police abolitionist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we're not a nonprofit organization. We're a group of people who um, many of us are motivated because we're parents. Um, some of the younger folks are motivated based on, you know, their own interactions. And I guess those of us who are older, too, are also motivated based on that. Um, but I think primarily for our children, right? Because mm-hmm. we see our, the faces of our children in the faces of the people who were killed. So for me, um, and the start of Black Lives Matter was really around the acquittal of George Zimmerman, who killed Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. And so I kept seeing my son's face and Trayvon's face. And that's what pushed us out into the streets. Um, But it's also what keeps us going. And so we do a lot of organizing work, making sure we get more people into the movement, Mm -hmm. but also a lot of disruption, right? Mm -hmm. So we believe in completely disrupting, dismantling, defunding the system as it is, and then visioning and building something different. In the next clip, Abdullah describes how a group of mothers met after the acquittal of George Zimmerman to form what would ultimately become the Black Lives Matter movement. So for me, July 13th, the day Zimmerman was acquitted, we formed something that we call the Mama Brigade, right? So four moms um, met on my couch. You know, we were like, what? You know, on the phone, everybody come over, right? And so we took to the streets from that. Mm-hmm. And we were out in the streets for like two days initially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at night we didn't bring our children with us, mm-hmm. but during the day we did. Um, the third day, um, a sister who I'd met through a black community space, black um, community organizers collective, um, her name is Patrice Colors. Mm-hmm. Um, she sent a text. Actually, it came through a journalist named Tandasis Wei Chimaranga, who I'd organized with around Oscar Grant stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she texted me and said, you know, we're all meeting at 9 o'clock at St. Elmo's Village, right? Um, meet at nine, The text read literally, meet at 9 p.m. at St. Elmo's Village, right? Mm-hmm. So um, July 15th was the first conscious meeting of what we called at the time justice for Trayvon Martin Los Angeles Mm -hmm. but Patrice had been working with Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi and they'd been talking about it and I didn't know Alicia then Um, Alicia had written some love letter to black people on Facebook that I didn't see because I didn't know her but Patrice saw and Mm -hmm. so they talked about they knew that we were all out in the streets but they talked about how do we make this a movement rather than a moment. Mm-hmm. And so 
that coming together was a convening of people that Patrice had the and Alicia and Opal mm -hmm. had the foresight to say, you know, let's commit ourselves to building a movement. So even though this is justice for Trayvon Martin, Los Angeles, right, that can't be all this, right? And so we, um, over the next couple of days, planned our plan. It was our first planned march mm -hmm. in Beverly Hills. And um, actually, there's a sign up from that on my window that you can see as you're leaving. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll notice, like, there's a big picture of Trayvon. And then there's hashtag J for TMLA, Justice, the number four, mm -hmm. Trayvon Martin, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. But then underneath it, in little bitty writing it says hashtag black lives matter and so that was the birth of black lives matter wow yeah in the fall of 2020 cal state fullerton students in dr natalie fusagas's oral history course interviewed individuals about their experience with black lives matter activism in the following two clips umberto mendez valadez asked ucla graduate and aspiring medical student regine smith about her experience attending a black lives matter protest following the death of george floyd smith shares her opinion on whether or not the protests have changed anything in this country and describes what black lives matter means to her to me <laughs> the people who don't want to be ignorant <laughs> are mm -hmm. the ones who are learning and are like okay like this is injustice and they believe black lives do matter um like for i had a friend who i'm pretty sure she voted for trump mm -hmm. in 2016 come to me and she was like i'm so sorry like black lives do matter like i don't know if i've ever expressed this to you but blah blah, blah. and that was because of george floyd and mm -hmm. so i think some people's in their head like the idea is the gears are turning now but for the people who i to my understanding are ignorant and are like blue lives matter and like black or like all lives matter um nothing's changed for them black lives matter does not mean that we're better that were more important it just means equality to me it doesn't and like justice it doesn't mean differential treatment or disparities it just means that we're supposed to be treated the same as everyone else mm -hmm. and not killed yeah. preferably in another interview conducted in 2020, Jocelyn Aponte asked CSUF campus photographer Matt Gush about his initial reaction to the video of George Floyd's death. To have a document, to have a video, a continuously rolling video. It wasn't like it was shot from, it was shot from multiple angles, you know, or documented from multiple angles, but to have a continuous view of the events that transpired it was just absolutely incredible. Like, it wasn't like you saw a selected edited, you know, two seconds that you know, the news might play. Like, no, you watched. And granted, you know, there was some stuff left out on part of it, but like you were there with him as he died and you're there the entire time that, you know, the, the police are on his neck. And yeah, it was terrifying. You're watching a person die. 
Later in this interview, Gush describes the experience of photographing the Black Lives Matter protests in Los Angeles and watching the events escalate over the next six days. Seeing how far something can fall so fast within a matter of days, that the U.S. military is mobilized here now was just absolutely surreal. And that was also at the point, too, where I realized, I think I, I you know, watched them mobilize and watched them get deployed. But then after that, I was like, I, if they got the military moving in, watching the civil rights, and I think Portland was kind of going at the same time, too, when they were arresting people nonstop. And that's when the journalists were really getting hit. And I said, this is, this is too much. And after, you know, six days straight, I, I finally kind of call it quits, at least to the consecutive coverage. Been out definitely since then, but... Um, yeah, no, and it was crazy. Each day had its own character. Each day had its own, you know, group of people and different motivations from different people and the aggregate and the police response and, and subsequent military response. It was, it was surreal. It was surreal. In our last clip, Gush talks about his decision to photograph the protests and how he felt a certain responsibility to document the events. And there were moments when the the grove was on fire that I'm looking around and it's, you know, the police had already pushed out the protesters and the building's on fire and there's piped in classical music that would have been playing for the shoppers. And it's just me, the police and the firefighters. There's no one else documenting. So I felt even more pressure that I was like, shoot, I'm the only one here that's, you know, an eyewitness that can do something about documenting this. So it was an even more interesting pressure, but also like, wow, responsibility to, you know, create around these circumstances. Cause yeah, like these things happen and then they're gone. Like there's something transient about that creation that if you don't have a record of it, then, you know, you're, yeah, it's, it kind of puts it into a different realm of history. So there's something about the temporal nature of photography of being able to freeze, you know, that slice in time and be able to share that and then subsequently be able to talk about it. So I hope you enjoyed these clips. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with these interviews, we have over 6,000 oral histories in our collection. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. And that is our outspoken episode. Thanks to my guests, Luca Azima, Fernando Lopez, and Mel Vigil. For archivist Natalie Garcia and producer Carrie Markin, this is Benjamin Cothra. Until next time.